Good morning, Watermark. Today's scripture is 1 John 4, verses 7 through 16. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit, and we have seen and testify that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. All right. Hey, thank you. Appreciate that. Save me four steps. Okay. Hey, you guys good? All right. You're lively and I like it. I made a mess of the morning service. I had the wrong slides. And there's still a few mistakes you will see that I didn't correct because we're humans and it should be known that we all make mistakes. Um, so uh, my name's Tommy. I'm the pastor here, surprisingly, and um, I'm glad you're here. And uh, we, we have been going through Matthew for the last three years and we ended that. We're starting Acts next month. But in, in the meantime, um, we're doing two weeks on Trinitarian theology. We're like, woo. Um, and next week, we're doing like a couple of weeks on like, what is the Bible? How does it work? Um, last week, we talked about this thing called Christology. And I literally had someone say, is that a made up word? Um, I mean, every word's made up. Um, I didn't make it up though. Uh, it, it's about like, what, what is Jesus? How do we think of Jesus? Um, divine, human, what is all this? Um, when you do it wrong, what happens? When you think about it correctly, what happens? And so we're going to do the same thing today with Trinitarian theology. Um, because Trinitarian theology is all about love. It is, um, uh, it, is, it is intended to correct how you love, how you have relationships with people, how you have relationships with God. Um, and uh, this is the path we're going to take today. And so I'm going to open this up in a word of prayer. And we're going to take a moment to sort of center ourselves on, on God and the scriptures. And we are going to jump into this. Let's do it, shall we? Father, thank you for this place, for allowing it to exist, for everyone that is in this, in this room, for whatever reason you have them here. Um, and, and, and we affirm that, that, uh, that you are working, you are here, you are working in our lives, you are calling us into something. Let us see what that is. Um, lead us and guide us. Fill us with exactly what we need, exactly when we need it, and no sooner, and no more or no less. Um, and I pray that we would, uh, we would begin to look at our relationship with you and our relationship with people as intertwined, that we cannot be right with you unless we are right with those around us. Um, I ask that right now you would allow us to be present and here. I, I, I ask that you would help us to sort of affirm all the problems that we have that we're working through, the things that are coming that we're afraid of, but, but affirm that they are real, but kind of push them aside for now and be present and be at peace so that when we pick them up later, we can look at them fresh and new. Um, speak through me, allow me to remember the things that I've studied and uh, um, be with us this morning uh, and, and every gathering of, of Christians around the city right now that is gathering, be with all of us. Guide us forward. In your name, amen. Okay, 
Um, there are about 3,500 denominations, in case you didn't know that, in Christianity. Um, and that could be a bad sign, but it could be a good sign. It could be, it could be a sign that um, people are thinking deeply um, and, and uh, interacting with the scriptures differently. And I think that's important. I think unity and diversity is different. Uh, unity, unity and diversity is, is important. Um, and differing opinions coming together are important. Um, however, this means that on certain subjects, there's going to be a wide array of thoughts. Uh, the love of God, what we're talking about this morning, the love of God represented in Trinitarian unity, um, is a big subject. A lot of people have different ideas on how God's love works. I want to walk through a few, a few of those this morning. When I think of ideas and concepts, I tend to think in like black and white little stencil drawings in my brain, and you've seen them. Um, and I'm going to, I drew a bunch, and I'm going to put them up here this morning. They're not good. They don't have to be. You don't have to be good. Um, anyways, um, the first thing I want, I want to say is that, is that a lot of people uh, believe that there are places where the love of God cannot go. Um, in my brain, it's something like this. Uh, that God's love is sort of there coming from God, radiating out, but there are places where the love of God cannot penetrate and cannot be distributed, uh, cannot enter in, whether it's dens of sin or hell itself, like like, the love of God just can't get there and go there. Um, and there are certain, uh, you know, sects of theology um, that teach this kind of thing, that, that believe this and that teach this. Um, every time you, you speak of the love of God and how it works, you're also speaking of your love and how it works with the people around you. Um, and you, everything that you see in God, you tend to emulate in your own heart in your own life. That's why it is vital that we wrap our minds around an accurate view of the love of God. So there's some that say that the love of God can't go certain places, that there are places that it just simply can't penetrate and be distributed. Some also say that uh, God's love is um, it's distributed in a way that God loves God's self better than God loves us, um, that everything God does is for God's own love and for God's glory, and that everything that exists, exists in a way to shower love upon God, and in a way that God loves you and I less than God loves God's self, and that determines actually some other theology about salvation even. Um, and this is a, a prominent idea. I don't think oftentimes people would say it like this, but they think this. Um, and this has repercussions. This leads us to other ideas. Um, it leads us to think that God's love is sort of like a commodity, that God has a thing called love, a bunch of it, and he's like showering it upon people, but only certain people because God's love can't go to some people. And even if they're asking for it and their arms are up, and there's others who are not asking for it, and if you don't ask for it, you don't get God's love. But there's other people who are doing everything right and who believe the right doctrines. You open up their skull and look in there, yep, it's all there, and you close it, and then you get love, right? Um, and we tend to think of the, of the love of God as something God has and distributes. Um, and if God is there and God is distributing love, this has repercussions. It raises all kinds of questions about, well, then what was God doing before we were here, before creation was here? Um, and they picture it kind of like this, like God had just a bunch of love and nothing to give it to. And God, right, it's sad. And God's alone with all this love and I have nobody to love. And he's like, sad. He's like, I know what I'll do. And I, I've heard it taught this way. I know what I'll do. I'm going to create something to love. And so that my love can be poured out upon this thing. But the fact is, if nothing had ever existed and God is existing by God's self with a whole bunch of love, then God's not really a loving God because God's just 
a thing. There's nobody to love because love is a relational thing. Um, and so God, if, God is, if love is something that God has, then what was God doing with that before we were here? And then, so God creates us and he pours love upon us. But what happens when you are unlovable? What happens when you make decisions that bring shame upon you and your family or whatever? What happens when you build yourself a terrible reputation? What happens when you have hidden, disgusting things inside of you and you no longer find yourself capable of loving God or receiving love from God, then what does God do? You are letting God down and literally keeping God from loving you. And you're destroying the whole thing that God was doing here. The weight of that upon us is terrifying. It's, it's abusive. It's shameful. It is painful. And we carry that. Um, and so it raises all kinds of questions about how do I remain lovable? How do I maintain the love of God upon me? I literally heard a pastor one day say, God is actively hating some people. They, they are at war with God and God hates them and he will hate them forever. Um, that has serious repercussions for how you treat other people because it probably means, it probably means that you are hating people and that you will hate those people forever and that the reason you're doing it is out of your love and devotion for God and your desire to be God-like, Christ-like, okay? Um, so how do I remain lovable? Um, am, am, I, am I living up to the responsibility that God has, has, has created me to be as his love object? Um, look at the things I've got done. Does, does God still love me? And what kind of weight are we demanding that people bear? Oftentimes, this works itself into how we pray. Um, we talk about how we have somehow disappointed God. We talk about how we have not loved God sufficiently. And by sufficiently, I mean to God's desiring and God's liking and God's need. God becomes a very needy God when you describe God this way. But in the New Testament, when you read the writings of the apostles and you read the writings of the early Christians, the church fathers, you don't see that God. You see something different. You see a God who doesn't have love. You see a God who is love. Um, let's go back to our passage, 1 John chapter 4. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God, and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Um, whoever does not love God, uh, whoever, I'm sorry, whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. So you are to love each other. You are to pour out your love and receive the love of each other. Why? Because God is love, and, and if you're going to love, you have to know how God does it, which is why three verses later, he launches into sort of this monologue on Trinitarian theology. The thing that Jesus revealed to us about God that awakens the world to this whole new way of thinking of God. No longer is God just Father and Spirit in this Benetarian kind of way, appearing here and appearing there in different forms, sometimes a cloud, sometimes fire, sometimes a spirit descending upon people. Instead, what we find in Jesus is the revelation that God is triune, but mono, one God existing in three. Um, and this has serious meaning. He says, no one has ever seen God but if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us his spirit, and we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. So all of this idea that God is love is wrapped up in this three-in-oneness that the early Christians believed that is so hard to wrap our minds around that is this mystery we are given to embrace. Um, so this morning, we're going to talk about how do we embrace this? How do we picture this? First thing I'm going to do 
is I'm going to give you a few ways not to picture it. Uh, ways that people have gotten very comfortable picturing God that is errant and that damages your relationships with other people, not just God. Um, and then we're going to go to this guy named Andrei Rublev, uh, who, who gave us this ancient iconography, um, this beautiful picture of the Trinity, and we're going to look that up. And when I talk about that, I'm going to encourage you to get your phones out and Google um, Rublev's Trinitarian image uh, so that you can see it in all its full color because our, our projector isn't going to do justice, okay? So here we go. There, just like there is... Christological heresy, that's what we talked about last week, and I, I listed all these superheroes, like basically you're turning Jesus into this superhero and that superhero. By the way, so many nerds reached out <laughs> with their suggestions and their thoughts and their offense that I would include the Terminator in with the superhero universe. My bad, I didn't realize it was a thing. Okay, so we're going to talk about some Trinitarian heresies. Um, and um, I think some of these you're going to recognize through your life that you have held on to and believed at different parts in your life. Uh, some of them you may hold on to now. Yesterday I posted, just for kicks and giggles, I posted a Facebook-like poll, and I asked one question, uh, and the answer was fascinating, that about 30% of you believe in Trinitarian heresy. Let's go. Here we go. Um, so let's go. The first one I want to talk about is called modalism. Um, modalism, uh, so it's the idea that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are three different modes of God. Like God is one God and he transforms into the Father and other times he transforms into the Spirit and other times he transforms into the Son. A good way to remember this one, moodalism, depending on the mood of God. Just Right? Okay. Anyways. Um, and so one of the ways they will describe this is by using uh, the illustration um, of water. That water is sometimes liquid in room temperature, but sometimes it gets very cold and it has to become ice. And then sometimes it gets very hot and it becomes vapor, but it's always just water. It's the same things. They're just taking different forms. And this is how they describe God. Um, and the reason this doctrine was invented was because um, people were getting defensive of the oneness of God. And they were afraid that people were dividing God into three gods and this and that. Um, and so in an attempt... To make sure everyone was thinking of God as monotheistic, they created accident, accidental heresy. Band name, accidental heresy. Um, and they created this accidental heresy, and it spread pretty wide in their churches today. There's entire denominations that teach this, by the way. Um, this thing keeps moving, so sound guy's going to have a fun time ed editing this podcast. Um, so, um, so, yeah, modalism. Um, it was invented out of a good thing. The oneness of God. However, what happens when you do this? In doing, in doing this, they, they deteriorated the love of God. And they basically are taking us back to the problem at the very beginning. If God is just one, just one and not triune, then God could not be love at a certain point in existence until there was other things to love. And so God became love. So love is not a definitive substance of God. It's just something God picked up along the way when he was creating us. Um, this damages our relationships. It makes God less lovable. It allows us um, to think of God in these ways. Now, another one that is um, very prominent, I'm going to spend a lot of time on this one, is one called subordinationism. This has to do with the question I asked yesterday. I asked a question on Facebook that said, um, it's just one question, uh, and it said something to the effect of, is Jesus eternally subordinate to the Father? The reason that question is important is because there's a, there's a big growth today in what's called subordinationism. Uh, subordinationism uh, can be described like this. Um, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are a divine 
hierarchy, a divine hierarchy. Um, and basically here, I drew it as well because that's what I do. Uh, the father's at the top and then there's the son uh, and then there's the spirit underneath that. Um, and the father's the one in charge and the others are submissive to the father. Specifically, the son is submissive to the father and the son is eternally submissive to the Father. Um, when I took that poll, 30% of you, it may not have been you, just people who follow me on Facebook, I'm assuming it's most of you, um, 30% of you answered, yes, the Son is eternally subordinate to the Father. Um, first thing I want to say, I want to quote Robin Williams, it's not your fault. It's not your fault. It's not your fault. You have been raised to think of God in this way. Um, there are entire doctrinal statements that you will find them, very prominent ones today. Um, and they'll, they'll usually say something like this. It'll say, uh, we believe in a triune God, one God existing in three persons. And then it'll specifically say, the Son is the second member of the Trinity. But it won't mention the Spirit or the Father. It'll just say, triune, the Son is the second member of the Trinity. Now, let's talk about this and what this does to us. Um, the most damaging part of subordinationism is that it teaches that the Son is eternal subordinate to the Father. And this is a particularly dangerous idea because it, it causes Christians to interpret the Bible in ways that are patriarchal, in ways that are oppressive, uh, when in fact the Trinity is intended, the way it's taught in the Scriptures, to set us free from patriarchy and chauvinism and hierarchy. It is intended to set us free from all of this. For instance, Paul writes, uh, one, of the, one of the verses people will point to, um, to make women submissive to men in the church, they'll point to, it says First Colossians, I'm sorry, it's a mistake, Colossians, unless there's another Colossians I don't know about, 11.3, I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of every woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Now, if you're not familiar with church and you've never read this in the Bible, right now your jaw's on the floor. Pick it up, put it back, let's talk about it. Um, when we think of head, we think of CEO. We think of the leader, the one calling the shots. He's got the voice, he's got the eyes, he's got the ears. He's saying all the things. And he's in charge and everyone submits to the head. Um, we tend to get very anachronistic and like project all this stuff onto an ancient text. Whereas in the first century, um, the words that are used here are not speaking of a CEO. The word that is used for head here is the word kafel. If, if Paul, let's, let's say kafel, kafel, there you go, uh, very good. The, if Paul was meaning to say authority, that man is the authority of the woman, he would have used the word archon. He did other places, talking about other things. Um, but here he used the word kafel. And the way you get a meaning of, of the meaning of a word in the Bible is, and this rubs some people the wrong way, you don't just look at how it's used in the Bible. You look at how it was used by contemporary texts in that same day, near that same genre. People that are writing at the same time using the same words, how did they use them? What did it mean? And you get a large swath of these and you survey all of them and you get a general concept of the meaning of the word in that day. Because words change um, in short periods of time. So this word um, in this day had two basic meanings. One of them was source, kephal meant source, speaking of sort of Adam as the first man, uh, the source of Eve, the first woman. Um, in other words, he's referencing Genesis, the rib taken and a woman formed. This does not mean that Adam was in charge of her. God was in charge of both of them together. Um, the other way um, that this was used is to describe sort of the physical head. Now, hold on. Going back to the source thing, it's, it's sort of like you're talking about the source of a river, right? Like the river comes from there. That doesn't mean that's like 
in charge of the rest of the river. It doesn't determine where it goes or what it does. That's just where it came from. Um, the other way, it's meant physical head. Um, this word specifically in its original meaning, literal text, means the thing which sits on top of the body. That's how it should be translated. Um, it sits on top of the body, not is in charge of the body. Um, Jesus, uh, God was the source of Jesus' incarnation as a human being. Um, so these things are connected. Jesus is connected to God, and one doesn't exist without the other. They are always connected. This is a, refuta- good, a solid refutation of, of one of the Christological heresies that Jesus was, the Son was born when Jesus was born, and the Son was not preexistent. Um, but we're getting a little ahead of ourselves here. Um, so basically, what Paul, is say- uh, what Paul is saying here to the church in Colossae is that they need each other to exist and survive. Men and women need each other, uh, and he's specifically referencing like procreation, creating other human beings. We exist because we exist together. Um, and in the same way, Jesus exists because God exists. The Son of God exists, and they do not separate. They cannot be pulled away from each other. Um, they need each other for, life, for, for themselves, for their own life to exist and flow. He's making a whole bigger point. He's not saying that women are subject to men in the home. If the Son, here's where subordination comes in. If the son is eternally subordinate to the father, eternally, then women are eternally subordinate to men. Uh, and that is a travesty that only heresy can bring us. Um, and here's the thing. In the writings of the apostles, the son sometimes does submit to the father. But there are times when the father submits to the son as well. He says, you want to know what I'm like? You look at my son. There are times when the spirit submits to Jesus. And there are times where Jesus submits to the spirit and, le- and, and allows himself to be led. Um, there are times where, where, the, where, where the Father sends the Spirit, and there are times when, when the Father himself appears in smoke, cloud, lightning, trumpet, blast, all kinds of stuff, or a still, small voice. Um, each is submissive to the other. Each is bowing down sort of to the other, giving each other preeminence. Subordinationism has made a huge comeback in the last 75 to 100 years. A huge comeback. Um, I promise you, you have read articles and listened to sermons that you loved and that blessed you by subordinationists. Um, it's, it's nefarious. It kind of sneaks in. Um, uh, it's had a massive comeback. It's, uh, it, it had a huge comeback, really, with uh, a lot of the new reform movements. Um, it's, uh, I've seen it on the Gospel Coalition. I've seen it on Desiring God. I've seen it in the, in the, um, on um, uh, other, other reform channels. I've seen it in, at Willow Creek. I've seen it at just all kinds of places where they, where they write in their doctrinal statements, the son is subordinate to the father. And the reason they do this is they, because they believe something called complementarianism. They believe women are always submissive to men in the church and oftentimes the home. Um, this is why this doctrine was invented and why it is taught. Um, so there is, um, and anywhere that you see complementarian theology, by the way, you can always trace it back to an errant view of the Trinity. Uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith centuries ago declared this a heresy. Um, and now at Westminster Theological Seminary, it is regularly taught. Um, and, and it's also just in the last eight years really come to light that this is a problem that needs to be addressed. And now people are starting to write books and address it. And if I actually Google it, you can take part in this conversation that is now happening. And people are, um, 
sort of renouncing their subordinationism or changing their doctrinal statements, and this is going to change their interactions with women in the church, I promise you. There's a guy named uh, Kevin Giles, he's a, he's a, a New Testament scholar, and he wrote this, and I think it was, it's poignant. He says, the doctrine of the Trinity has been redefined and reworded to give the weightiest theological support possible to the permanent subordination of women. Every evangelical who has written in support of eternal subordination of the Son is committed to the permanent subordination of women in the church and the home. This agenda is what drives them to advocate the eternal subordination of the Son. What they want to see determines how they will change their theology. You will see this a lot. Um, This is what happens when we move away from the ancient sort of mysterious way of pondering Trinitarian theology. Because in fact, any form of hierarchy within the Godhead is another form of heresy and should not exist. It is abusive to the people around you. Um, It causes you to love people wrongly. Um, A lot of people are turned off to Christianity because they hear of things like hierarchy in the Trinity um, and they have been sort of victims of authoritarianism, abuses of power, terrifying brushes with people who, who have status or power or wealth or authority who oppress them in some way. And they cannot go back to, to worshiping a God who lives and exists this way. And they're not called to. This is not the God that is presented to us in the scriptures. Um, what we find in the God of the scriptures is not a patriarch in charge as if everyone were submitting to a human father, a man. Um, what we find is a father who is not always placed first. There are plenty of places in scriptures where the father is placed second or third in line of the other ones. And this was subversive and unheard of in the ancient world. The father is the man and is the oldest and he, he bore the family and he owns everyone in the household and he controls everything. And so the father, the patriarch, is always placed first. Yet when you read the scriptures, you see things like this. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of the father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Okay, this is the same reason that there are places in scriptures where Paul greets the women first, a wife, and then her husband. All of this is done on purpose to reverse damaging effects of patriarchy in the world around them. Okay, Um, our own denomination has dealt with this. Uh, We used to be, this Christian Missionary Alliance used to be sort of a more charismatic denomination, more spirit-led denomination. After Vietnam, right around like the mid-70s, really, uh, there was a huge, a huge reform takeover of our denomination, and they stripped women of ordination, and they stopped ordaining women altogether. And it has been like that until this very day, which we are now attempting to reverse that. Um, Trinitarian heresies are dangerous. They hurt people. Moving on. Okay. Now, rather than patriarchy... Uh, Rather than enforcing patriarchy and chauvinism, what you see in in the New Testament is the belief that the Trinity works precisely against chauvinism and for the delight of harmonious relationships. This is why women flocked to the church, the early church. There were far more women than there were men because in the church they found something they didn't find anywhere else. Everywhere else, when babies were born, if they were girls, they were either killed or exposed, left in the street, left in the Roman Colosseum um, to die or to be fed to other animals. This is, they did not love or appreciate women. They were a commodity to bear them children. Um, and the Christians would go and save all of these little girls and bring them back, and they were raised in the church. The early church was majority women. Uh, this is what you would see. Another reason they were brought to the church was because the, they, the, the church was, 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 was wildly against um, 
men uh, committing infidelity, like cheating on their wives. And in the pagan, religion, uh, pagan religions, this was celebrated. In the pagan world, it was just normal that men cheated on their wives all the time at whatever the women that they wanted to. But in the church, this was confronted. And men were kept faithful to women as a, as a symbol of God and his people, of a monogamous, loving, committed relationship till the very, very end. A faithfulness to one person, and the same way that Israel is faithful to one God. This was a picture of all of it. Women were drawn to this. Not only that, there were programs to help widows, which did not exist outside the church. There were programs to bring women into leadership in the church. Um, in the early church, there was tons of women in leadership. You flip to Romans 16, you see tons of women. You can just make a giant list of all of them who were in charge all the time, alongside of men, teaching men oftentimes, um, as well as a general egalitarian structure of, of masters and slaves became equals in the church, P uh, Jews and Gentiles, um, men and women. There was a general sense of full egalitarianism and equality in the church. And the reason it was like this in the early church was because of our understanding of God. This is, this is what drove all of it, okay? When we tinker with this, we are tinkering with this as well with our relationships with each other. So, what do we do? How do we think? How do we address this? Well, there was one man, his name was uh, Rublev, Andrei Rublev. Um, so if you wanna Google, there's this image, uh, it's called, it's Rublev, R-U-B-L-E-V, um, Trinity. Um, he painted this 700 years ago in Russia. He was a pastor of a church. And um, they were, his church was, um, trying to figure out what it means that God is love, how to love God. And they were trying to figure out how this looks. And he wanted to explain this to them. He was a, a very talented artist and an iconographer. Um, and he decided, I'm going to paint you a picture of God. And so his people were illiterate, so he couldn't just write about it. And so this is what he came up with. He painted this. If you're looking at it on your phone, it's probably a lot more vibrant and vivid. There's gold and there's green and more colors. Um, but Rublev wanted them to understand God's love because um, the important thing, okay, so one thing, one thing I want to lay out for you is the important thing of iconography is that it's, it's as non-literal as possible. If you try to make a very literal icon, um, like just draw a picture of God or whatever, you're ultimately going to stumble into heresy or something. And ultimately, iconography is meant to be sort of metaphorical and artistic and abstract. Um, on top of that, if iconography is literal, it's bad iconography, and everyone would know that. Um, so you're supposed to tell a story, and you're supposed to sit and ponder it and pull out all the meaning of it. So this is what Rublev painted for his church, this icon, hung it in the church. Um, it still exists today. You can see it, and in real life, it's apparently vibrant and beautiful. I had a professor tell me about it. Um, so Rublev chooses, as his theme... This, this is Genesis 18. If you're familiar with the book of Genesis in chapter 18, there's this story of Abraham and his wife Sarai and they're traveling. Um, they're on this journey following God. They're waiting for this covenant to move forward and take, uh, take hold and have children. And they're approaching the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. And before they get there, there's these three angelic beings that visit them. And these angelic beings, they show up. They're just described as angelic beings. And they gather with them under the tree of memory in the back because in the, first, in the ancient world, pre-first century, um, hospitality was vitally important or you would die. So if you see a stranger, you take them in and you feed them. So they gather, they gather under the tree of Mamre in the back. Their house is over here. Um, Rublev wants you to know that this is like, um, this, is, this is real. This is in this world. Um, this is happen happening in the dust 
by the house where they live, under trees. It's not this icon that's in this like spatial space in the clouds with bright light. It's here. It's tangible. It's a meal that you're eating. Um, and so there's, he, uh, and the way this text goes is it starts saying, and one of the visitors said this, and then one of the visitors said this, but then the language switches, and the language says, and then the Lord said this, and one of them speaks, and then the Lord said, and then one of them speaks, and then the Lord said, and then one of them speaks. Rublev is reading this, and he begins to see something in his mind that was present in this story that he thinks only Jesus later would reveal to them the meaning of it, that only now is this story unlocked for us to have the full breadth of meaning of this story. And so he makes this the center of his icon. Now let's, let's sort of meditate and ponder this icon for a second and look at what we see, um, and let's see what he's doing with the Godhead here, okay? So the um, first thing I would say is that they're all exactly the same size. If you get out a ruler and you measure from the tip of the foot to the top of the head of the two on the side, you will see they are identical sizes. And the one on the back is sitting farther away and higher. Same size. Okay. Um, now, same size. Why are they the same size? Um, because the Nicene Creed demands that what you would say about one, you would say about the other. That's why they all have the exact same face. That's why they have the same bizarre hairstyle. Um, that's, why, that's why they're all sort of making the same sort of face, because they're the same person, but they're three people. And so the, the whole point of this is that what you would say about one, you must say about the other. So when you look at the image, you're struck by like, okay, so they're the same. One's not bigger, one's not smaller. There's nothing submissive, and there's nothing um, authoritarian about this picture. Um, and so as you move farther, you begin to see um, that they're all sort of, you, you ponder their clothing, and you all realize, okay, so they're all wearing blue. Blue is, in the ancient world, especially in this time, uh, it was reserved for royalty, for kings. Kings wore blue. Other people didn't wear blue. If you're wearing blue, you're a king. Um, but the way they're wearing it is different. You would think they would all be wearing the blue the exact same way. None of them are wearing a crown, which would sit exactly the same on the head. Instead, they're all wearing this blue garment, and it's all sort of hidden or worn or draped differently. So let's walk through this. On the left, you will see this is the father, and the father is wearing the kingly robes, the robes of the king, underneath this gold I want to say lame, that's a word, um, sort of, uh, I, I like this see-through sheer, um, sort of beautiful garment, and you can see through it in, in, in higher resolution pictures of this, you see through it and there's blue behind it. And so, the idea here is that his, clo- his divinity is clothed in this gold sheer fabric because his divinity is clothed in this unapproachable light and glory, this beauty through which we see our king in in the Old Testament, in brightness, in smoke and thunder, in trumpets, in, in this glory, this weight that we see the Father. You pan to the right a little bit, you see the Son. The Son is also wearing the blue robe, but he's also wearing um, the brown of the dust of the earth. He's wearing dirty, brown, plain clothes. Um, they're not sheer, you can't see through them. Because there's nothing to see. You look at Jesus, and you see what you are supposed to see. There's nothing hiding. There's nothing else behind it. He's trying to battle 
these, these Christological heresies, right? Um, and so it brings, Jesus brings our humanity to the table. When he sits at the table, our representative is there. Our humanity is there. Um, flesh, blood, fingernails, and hair, like all of it is at the table with uh, the divine, right? Um, he wears his glory, his, um, his kingliness, his royalty on the outside. He's got followers. He speaks the law. He is everything that would represent a Davidic king. And you look at him and you can see, oh, he represents, as in the book of Matthew, he clearly represents our king. And it's there. But it's sort of like half, you could see half of it as a king and half of it as, as, as humanity, Okay, um, and so none of the fabric is sheer, of course, again, because, because you cannot see through his humanity to see something else. You are meant to look at Jesus. You're not meant to look through Jesus. Um, the figure on the right is draped in, 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 the, in the pictures you will actually look at. Not this. This looks kind of yellow or gold. Um, the actual picture is, is this bright, vibrant green of like grass, of like, of like fields of grass, um, and the reason that it is green is because it represents the giving of life, the spirit that hovered over the waters and planted life and caused it to grow, the, um, the spirit that, that Paul says, and Jesus, the spirit raised Jesus from the dead, um, the one that breathed, that Jesus speaks and the spirit raises Lazarus from the dead. The spirit is there planting life, making things new, bringing growth. And they're all at the table together. Now, what are they looking at? So you kind of, there's kind of this, it's kind of vague what they're looking at. They're kind of looking at each other, but they're also looking at the cup. Uh, the Spirit's definitely looking at the cup, um, right? Like, um, and it's sort of like the cup is the centerpiece of the entire picture because the cup of wine is the cup of communion. And the cup is what brings them all to the table. The cup is, is their gift to each other. It's not just what draws them in. This is like God is love thing, right? Like, it has drawn them in, this loving cup being poured out. It draws them in, and they sit at the table, and they gift it to each other in the same way that we do every week. And as they look at the cup, they ponder what this relationship is and what it means, um, because the cup is the central piece of the whole thing. Um, it's also, again, their gift to each other. Now, let me drop this microphone, because I want to point something. I'm going to drop the mic. Let me point this out to you. Um, now, there's a symbol down here on the front of the tablecloth. So what Rublev has done, he didn't create a three-sided table. He created a four-sided table, as you do. Um, and at the bottom here, there is this symbol. It's sort of this kind of swirl. Um, now, when this was painted um, at the time, this was sort of a symbol that represents um, the known world at the time. It represents humanity. It represents all life. It represents sort of the uni universal existence, if you will. Um, I... I did read, uh, some of you right now are thinking of Richard Rohr. I, I read Richard Rohr's book where he argues that there was a mirror stuck there, and that's what this, none of that's true. Um, sorry. Um, but the idea is okay. I support the idea. Because um, what this is is, this is what tells us Rublev has created this table, and it's, a, it's at the place with the Godhead is a place for you and for me to sit at the table with God, and the cup. You and I and everyone else has been brought to this table of communion to join in the communal life of the triune God. Now, everyone in Rublev's church, everyone in this church, was raised and given 
uh, a view of God, either from your parents or from your pastor, from your school, whatever. You were given a view of God, um, and that's a view of God that you have always had, that you've probably walked with. Maybe you've deconstructed it a little bit and built something else up, but still, you have an image of God um, that you are working with, and the challenge of Christians is to imagine God in a way that allows uh, the Spirit and the Son and the Father all to be present in that picture. And if all three are not present in that picture, your view of God is errant. And it's going to hurt your relationship with God. It's going to hurt your relationship with people. It's going gonna, it's gonna to determine eventually how you interact with people. I mean, think about subordinationism. When this first popped up, it was just an idea. Um, eventually, if it's not grappled with and stripped out, it grows and grows and grows and grows and grows. And then now you look around and you see men abusing women in the church. And you can probably trace this back, I would argue, to the entrance of subordinationism into the church. And now we're finding it and we're going to work on it and we're going to try to fix this and rectify this and correct theology. But this has happened before. And it's why it was written in the Westminster Confession of Faith and it will happen again one day. We must be aware. We must constantly be going back and pondering ancient Christianity because I always say, I always try to remind you, Christianity is inherited. It's not written as we go. It is something inherited. And it must be understood as it is being inherited where it hurts people. So here's the challenge. You have this picture of God and you want to talk to God and you want to pray. You want to think of God in some way. The challenge is to keep all three in view as you do this because sometimes we elevate one of these over the other, um, whether it's Jesus or the Spirit in some traditions or the Father in some traditions. Um, and sometimes we see the Father as this, um, as this sort of angry overlord and Jesus standing there on your side. So it's like good cop, bad cop, right? Lego movie, right? You have good cop, bad cop, and the bad cop is mad at you, and Jesus is like, hey, no, like, it's cool. Like, he's one of me. Like, I'm one of them. We're cool. Like, don't be mad. And that Jesus is appeasing the angry one, but the challenge of Christianity, the challenge of Christian doctrine, of, of Trinitarian theology is to sit at the table, and when you look into the face of the Father in this terrifying sort of unapproachable like, light, right, like, you also are sitting at the table with the same exact face in another being, Jesus, who is with you and cares and has poured himself out for you. And then you look to your right, and who's there? The Spirit is there with you as well. At the same time, while you are talking, you're also talking to the Spirit who is working in you planting life and bringing new, beautiful, good things. And so at the same... Oh, this thing is dumb. All right. So the same time, people on the podcast are like, what, what happened? Uh, so the same time, the same time that, that you are being sort of dealt with and, and you're in confession, the Spirit is with you at the table bringing life. Jesus is with you, looking in the eye and saying, follow me now. I'm with you. I poured myself out for you. I know exactly how you feel. Like the Godhead, three in oneness, threeness in oneness. And, and, and sometimes we see the Father as this angry overlord, and, Jesus is not, and, and you forget that Jesus and the Father are one, and you can see the face of the Father and the loving face of Jesus. And sometimes you picture God as smiting and destroying, but we forget that the Spirit is actually bringing and giving life. Um, and Jesus is the one who is pouring out life for us. So when we talk about God, it is encouraged to say, and the Son too, and the Spirit too. All of you are here together at this table. And so when I come to this table with my request, and I come to the table with my problem, with my fear, with my tragedy, and I stand here with the, as in the presence of the Godhead, I sit at the table and I take communion, 
and I'm there in the presence of a God who is three, who is one, and each part of this speaks to me in the depths of my soul in a different way. How would this change your prayer life? You're going into a situation with people who test your nerves and your temper. I need the spirit of, of Christ upon me so that when people look at me, I can be the presence of, of the divine in this room. Uh, I need, if you're, if, you're, if you're going in, you know, ad litem, you guys who are doing this, um, I need the spirit of, of, I need the spirit of God, I need the Holy Spirit with me because I need, I need life to enter into this person and growth and change. Um, and sometimes you're in the presence of God and it's this shining, um, glorious thing and you sense you're in the presence of, of, of the divine. It's like the Father is there with you in ineffable, beautiful, glorious light pouring this love out upon you, coming and inviting you to take part and sit at the table and join in this perichoretic love that is being passed around the table. All three are present with you at any given time. Oftentimes when we say the word God, we're just thinking of the Father. That ought not be. Um, When we speak of God, we are not speaking of hierarchy. We are not speaking of patriarchy. We are not speaking um, of this unapproachable thing. We're not just speaking of this thing that was just signs and wonders. We're not just speaking of this earthly king. We're speaking of all of it together. We're sitting at the table. And it breathes life into us. And this is what Jesus has revealed to us. This is what Jesus has revealed about God to us. It changed our entire understanding of God. And so now, um, I want to have a time of, of communion. And uh, we're going to, I'm just going to keep my hand here. And we're going to come together. <laughs> I don't know. Not to do. <laughs> Ruining my TED Talk. Um, now. We're going to have a time of communion, and uh, the, the communion servers, you guys can go and take the elements and spread around the room as you come to the table. This is how I want you to come to the table. A full understanding, a triune God is there with you. Um, what needs to be said by you needs to be said to all three, and what is received needs to be received from all three, pondering every side of this whole thing. I think Rublev gave, gave, us, gave his church and us a great gift in this. I think we should take part in this. I think we should par- take part in trying to sort of describe in beauty and metaphor through song, through poetry, the, the beautiful mystery that is God. It doesn't need to be deconstructed and understood. It's a mystery to be embraced. It's not something that can be all laid out like a math problem. Embrace the mystery, sit at the table, ponder all three individually and together in this mysterious oneness. So our communion servers, you guys come on up. Let's take communion. Um, I want to invite all of you to take communion. You don't have to be a a follower of Jesus, I, I, I want you to come and understand what we're doing. Um, there are two elements. There's bread, represents the body of Christ, broken for you, for the forgiveness of your sins, for your salvation, for your wholeness, for your restoration, for your reconciliation with God and with people. Um, there, is, there is wine. It's not even really wine. It's just kind of juice. Um, and it symbolizes the blood of Christ poured out for you because this is how salvation enters into the world. This is Christian theology. This is how this works. Um, Jesus has asked us to follow him, to allow ourselves to be broken and poured out for other people. This is how they're made whole. Let's pray. Um, and when we're done, you're free to go. You're dismissed. Spend time in prayer together. If you'd like to pray with somebody right through these doors, on the, go out the doors on the right, there'll be somebody there to pray with you. Um, Take all the time you need. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this place and these people. Make us whole. Mend us. 
of our errant views of you. Reveal yourself to us more and more as we move forward. Um, We repent of these things. We give them up. And we embrace mystery. And we allow ourselves to be drawn into it. Thank you, Father. In your name, amen. Take some time. Talk to God and uh, have a great week.